Well, this morning, uh, last week in the Gospel of Mark for a while for us, and uh, want to, um, uh, we'll be in Mark 10, 32 through 45. Next week, um, we'll, be in, we'll begin actually Advent of all things, and we're going to take a few, mo- few weeks to look at the book of Hebrews um, and the fact that Christ is greater. And that's really one of the big themes of the book of, of Hebrews, is that Christ is greater than anything else in this world. So we're going to uh, take uh, a month or so to look at Hebrews. Um, and this morning's text is a lengthy one, um, Mark 10, 32 through 45. Because of how lengthy it is, we're actually uh, not going to read it like we normally do at the, at the beginning of our time. Uh, we'll just work our way through this passage this morning. And uh, I want to begin by probably showing my age a little bit, um, but one story that I have been following uh, quite a bit over the last month or two is uh, the, the conversion of Kanye West. Um, I don't know if you have been familiar with this. Uh, if you don't know who Kanye West is, um, he is arguably, uh, and these are not my words, but arguably one of the most important artists of uh, the, the 21st century, um, one of the most important musical artists, at least uh, for, for the hip-hop genre. Um, he rose to prominence in the mid-2000s um, with his first album, and he became known um, like pretty much overnight for how, how I, I don't want to say rich, but um, everyone really just loved his music. His music was also extremely offensive. Um, the lyrics that he used, extremely offensive, but he was extremely popular, um, and uh, that is, that's been the case for the last decade and a half. He's, he's married, not, he's not just popular himself, but he's married to entertainment royalty here in the United States, Kim Kardashian, if you know that name. And uh, also, through all the midst uh, of his success and his popularity, his fame, his, his fortune, uh, never been someone to shy away from all of that. He was someone who, who mentioned and bragged about his success constantly, even in 2013, wrote a song called I Am a God. So that tells you kind of where he was at. Um, and, and perhaps the, the greatest illustration of our text last week, if you were with us, as we looked at Mark 10, um, verses 17 through 31, and this powerful statement from Jesus that, that salvation is impossible for anyone without God, and yet nothing is impossible for God. Over the last couple months, Kanye West has become a Christian, and his most recent album, uh, is, is titled Jesus is King, and, and every single song in this, in this album is, is about his newfound faith in the Lord Jesus. It's been fascinating to, to look at some of the interviews that he has given over the last month or so with, with big, you know, late-night celebrity hosts and that, and that kind of thing, and people will ask him, Are you, do you consider yourself a Christian hip-hop artist now? And, and he says, I, I just consider myself a Christian everything. It doesn't matter if I'm hip-hop or not. I just, I consider myself a Christian. Uh, someone in an interview asked him, uh, you know, what do you do now at night now that you've become a Christian? And he said, I just sit at home and read my Bible. Uh, it's a powerful moment, this, this beautiful picture. And in fact, um, the book of Luke actually tells us that anytime someone becomes a Christian, we're supposed to, to celebrate, we're supposed to rejoice uh, because, because heaven is rejoicing when, when those who are lost become found. But that's not actually the reason why I want to bring up him uh, this morning. I think that... As beautiful as this story is, it has also revealed something that's, that's kind of dangerous in the evangelical church, in the hearts of, of those who are um, Christians. And that is, if you've noticed or if you've been following this, there has been this massive embrace of Kanye West, over the, which should happen, don't get me wrong, but there's this massive embrace that almost as if now that Kanye West is a Christian... Hundreds of thousands of other people will now become Christian. Every single person that he influenced for a decade and a half with his secular music career, there's this mindset that now that he is a believer, it's a foregone conclusion that, yes, now God is going to bring all of these people into the kingdom. And that is the key to the growth of God's kingdom. And one of the things that we see over and over throughout church history is that we have a tendency to run to power. Our culture is, is drunk on power. The, the church has, has drunk its fair share as well. And I think today we oftentimes think that the key to the spread of the gospel is for someone like Kanye West to become a Christian, and then hundreds of thousands of people will come to faith in this watershed moment. And it's not just Kanye West. This is just the most recent example for this. We see this every few years with various celebrities 
who make a profession of faith or share about their own faith. Last few years, we've seen this exact same thing amongst Christians who have professed their faith on a, on a nearly global stage. People like, you know, whatever you think of these people, Justin Bieber has become a Christian and de- declares his faith and is very outspoken about his faith. Steph Curry, Chris Pratt, Kevin Durant, Josh Hamilton, Tim, Tim Tebow, going back a little bit further. And those are just the ones that come to mind off the top of my head over the last couple years. We have this tendency to think that the way that God works is through using cultural power to bring people to faith in him. And the church does the same thing with political power as well. We have a tendency to think that if if we can just get the right people into office, then the fields will be ripe for harvest. Of course, this passage that we're going to look at, church history certainly speaks to something very different for us. Now, God can God does use people that are in places of power, both cultural power and political power, to further his kingdom, but that's the exception rather than the rule. In fact, Jesus, I think in our passage this morning, would go as far as saying that if we are seeking power, if we are seeking any sort of authority, even with this desire in our hearts to bring Jesus honor and to spread his kingdom, then that's the wrong thing to do. That's not the way his kingdom spreads. It's not spread through the pursuit of power, but rather in following Jesus' example. It's done through the sacrifice of ourselves for the good of others. Now, if you've been with us over the last uh, few months or so, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, specifically this this chunk of Mark that starts at the end of, of Mark 8 and goes through the end of Mark 10. And it's all about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. For the last two and a half chapters, as we've been working our way through this, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. What does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And the cross is right on the horizon. And this morning's passage actually gives us the final of three predictions that Jesus makes about his coming crucifixion, his coming death and resurrection. For Jesus, the crucifixion is, is just right around the corner. It's just a couple weeks away from where we are this morning in this passage. Mark 11 actually begins the final week of Jesus' life, and we're just a couple verses from Mark chapter 11, but we're not there. We're not quite there yet. We'll look at that once we come back to Mark in, in January. This morning's passage contrasts this path of the Messiah. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow in his footsteps with the way the, the, basically the entire world operates? Everything in the world says pursue power so that way you can accomplish your goals. But Jesus says something different. So as we work our way through this text, we're going to break it into four separate parts. And it's going to culminate with verse 45. Jesus is very powerful word here that he says that he has come to give life by giving his life as a ransom for many. So let's pray as we approach God's word. Lord, as we uh, consider the words of this text, I know that, just speaking personally, I I stand all too often guilty of the same heart that's on display here from James and from John and, and ultimately from the other disciples as well. I confess that all too often I've sought your glory too little. I've sought my own glory too much. And if it were not for your son giving himself as a ransom for people like me, I would stand condemned. Lord, I just thank you for the message of the gospel. And God, as we approach this text this morning, we ask that you would use it to shape us. You would use it to mold us more and more into the image of your son, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And so we ask these things through the power of your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first part of our text um, is Jesus' prediction of his crucifixion in Mark uh, 10, I think it's 32 through 34. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, this is the third of three predictions that that Jesus gives of his death and what awaits him when they finally make it to Jerusalem. Now remember, where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 8, 29 essentially starts this section of the Gospel of Mark with this uh, pinnacle moment in the Gospel of Mark. 
Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they answer that you are not some prophet, you are not just some miracle worker, but that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, you are the one who will bring the kingdom of God. And immediately after that moment, Jesus basically, through his silence, he says, yes, I, I am, and let me tell you what that means. And so he takes the time at this first prediction of what will take place at Jerusalem, and he says what it means that he is the Christ. It means that he will face suffering and, and he will be killed, but then he will rise again in Mark 8, 31 and 32. And for the disciples, this is just absolutely unthinkable. The disciples have been raised in this context where they, they literally grow up with bedtime stories about the Christ and how he will come as this conquering king, that he will come and he will slaughter the Roman oppressors when he gets to Jerusalem. And so Peter, being the good Jewish boy that he is, takes it upon himself to correct Jesus and tell Jesus what it actually means for him to be Jesus and says, hey, no, 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 that's not how it works, Jesus. You, you won't be killed when you get to Jerusalem. And this leads to the harshest rebuke in the entire Bible. And then it leads to this moment where Jesus teaches what it truly means for us to be his followers. It means that we pick up our cross, and we deny ourselves, and we follow Jesus. Then we get to the next chapter, Mark chapter 9. And Jesus' disciples, they've, they've just left the far north uh, northern part of, of that region. He taught the, the disciples on, on faith, and taught, taught the disciples on what it means to believe in him, and they begin weaving their way through the countryside. And in Mark, eight, Mark 9, rather, 30 through 32, it tells us that Jesus again is teaching his disciples about what will await him when they get to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to men, and he will be killed. But if you're familiar with that passage that we looked at about uh, a few weeks ago, the, the disciples cannot be troubled with such thoughts. They have more important things on their minds, namely, which one of them is the greatest? So Jesus is talking about what he is going to do for them. Meanwhile, the disciples are talking about, arguing about who among them is the greatest. And then Jesus teaches his disciples about what it means to actually be great, but just in case we thought that that actually would sink in to the disciples, right after that we see Apostle John deciding that he is the gatekeeper telling people who can follow Jesus and who can't follow Jesus. And so Jesus, again, teaches on the kingdom and says, this is what it means to be a part of my kingdom. This is what it means to follow me. And then we get to Mark 10. And this is our text this morning. And we're going to see Jesus' words again. They fall on deaf ears. This message of what awaits him in Jerusalem will fall on, on deaf ears. There's this fascinating parallel that we see in Mark 8, 9, and 10. There's a prediction in Mark 8. There's a prediction in Mark 9. There's a prediction in Mark 10. And in each of those, Jesus makes a prediction, and then there's this colossal failure from some of his disciples. But not just from any of his disciples. It is from his three closest friends, the three disciples who were the closest ones to Jesus, those that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, right after Jesus makes a prediction about his, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, then all of a sudden they say, no, 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 that, that's not how this works, or no, 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 that's not how we are going to live. Mark 8, we saw Peter, he does this. He says, Jesus, that's not how this whole thing is going to work. And Mark 9, John is the one who says, no, 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 no you, you, you can't follow Jesus, you got to follow us as well. And then here in Mark 10, we see that uh, James and John respond by saying, okay, well, we want to be number one and number two in your kingdom. And, and in case we think that these stories of the failure of the disciples are, are listed here in the Gospel of Mark, just for us to shake our heads and pat ourselves on the back and say, my goodness, thank goodness I'm not like them. No, they, they, they are here to, to remind ourselves that if Jesus' closest friends could completely miss the boat, if they could completely miss what it means to actually follow Jesus, then we should also pause and we should also say, oh, oh, okay, if Jesus' closest friends can miss this this badly, then I need to make sure that I pursue Jesus with such a fervency that I don't miss it, that I don't miss what it actually means to be a part of his kingdom. And that's especially the case this morning. And this passage that is so countercultural to the way that our world operates, the pursuit of power. No, this is a passage that says, lay down your pride, 
and follow me. So let's look at verse 32, first and foremost. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. We'll stop right there first. Notice the context here of this prediction. Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They are like tens of thousands of other Jews. They're headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. And as they're making this pilgrimage to the Passover, the the disciples have no idea that something far more important than the Passover is about to happen. But Jesus knows. And, And here we see Jesus on a mission. The way I just picture Jesus in this moment is the way I walk in an airport. I have a mission. I'm going to get to my gate. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's, he's walking ahead of his disciples. He's, he's leading his disciples. He's leading them as they all head to Jerusalem. And the text tells us that the 12 disciples are amazed. They're astounded. This is a common word in the Gospel of Mark. It also tells us that the others that are following Jesus at that time, they're, they're afraid. They are filled with fear. And of course, these two terms, they, they beg the question, What are they amazed at? What are they afraid of? And to answer that question, we look at the the gospel of Mark as a whole. And as we look at the gospel of Mark as a whole, we see that these are two words that oftentimes show up as soon as Jesus does something miraculous. Or as soon as Jesus does something amazing, something miraculous and powerful and incredible, people respond with fear and they respond with amazement. So, for example, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus casts out a demon and people respond with amazement. Jesus calms the storm and the disciples are terrified. Jesus heals a young boy and people are amazed. Jesus walks on water and the disciples are terrified. In the Gospel of Mark, amazement and fear are two very common responses to everything that Jesus does. If Jesus does something incredible, people will respond with amazement and fear. And so what does that mean for us here in verse 32? Well, I think it's telling us that, that what is about to, uh, it's telling us about something that's about to come. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's going to do something that is the most incredible, the most powerful, but also the most terrifying thing that Jesus has ever done in his life. He's about to go to the cross. He's headed to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. Verse 33, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus takes the twelve apostles aside and begins to give them the details of what is to come. Notice how how specific he is in this passage. He's describing what is to come. He says not only that he will be delivered over, like he said in Mark 9, 31, but specifically that he's going to be delivered into the hands of the Jews, the hands of the Jewish leaders. And those Jewish leaders are going to try him in a kangaroo court, and they're going to condemn him to death. And then Jesus is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And this is incredible. If you flip a couple chapters uh, later into the Gospel of Mark, you will see that this is exactly the same structure that Mark follows, that Jesus is handed into the, Jew- the hands of the Jewish leaders, and then Jesus is handed in, or he goes to court, and he's, he's um, condemned to death. And then right after that, he's handed into the Roman uh, leader's hands, and they mock him, and they spit on him, and they beat him, and then all of a sudden, they kill him. Mark 15 and 16 follow this structure. But this isn't just a passage that is predicting what is going to happen on a very earthly level. This passage also uses some very intentional words here to describe what is about to happen to Jesus. Notice that Jesus uses the words delivered over to describe what is about to happen to him. Now, this is significant because it carries a a double meaning. What does it mean that Jesus is delivered over into the hands of the Jewish leaders? Well, it means, one, that he is betrayed by Judas, right? He's delivered, he's betrayed by Judas into the hands of the the Jewish leaders. And, And what does it mean that the Jewish leaders then hand him over, deliver him over to the Roman authorities? Well, yes, it means that they do that, but but it also means something deeper. 
Romans chapter 8 uses this exact same word to describe something deeper that is happening here than just the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. It's not just Judas who hands Jesus over and betrays him. Something deeper is happening. Romans 8, 31 and 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The phrase there, gave him up, is the exact same word in Greek. It is the exact same word that Mark uses here to describe Jesus being delivered over to the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. So we ask ourselves, well, who is the one who is delivering Jesus over? In one sense, it's absolutely Judas. But in a deeper and and truer sense, it's God. And who is it that is delivering Jesus into the hands of the Roman authorities? In one sense, yes, it's the Jewish leaders. But in a deeper and truer sense, it is God himself. This is a part of Jesus' plan, of God's plan, from the very foundation of the world. That he would be handed over into the hands of men and crucified as a ransom for many. In his sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter uh, gives us a picture of what this, uh, of these, uh, we have to hold these both in detention. It says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Never lose for a second that this true, these two truths of the crucifixion, as horrible and awful as it may be, the crucifixion was a part of God's plan from the very beginning so that he could ransom many people. And also at the same time, never lose sight of the fact that Jesus' death was, was accomplished through jealous and petty and power-hungry Jewish leaders and bloodthirsty Roman authorities and those who mock Jesus. We have to hold both of these equally in tension to recognize that, yes, the Jewish leaders are absolutely irresponsible. The Roman authorities are absolutely responsible. And yet all of this happened as a part of God's plan that Jesus has been delivered over as a sacrifice for us, ultimately by God himself. Let's look at the second part of this passage, the request of James and John here, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. After Jesus' final prediction of his suffering and death, two of his disciples approach him and they have a request. And James and John are coy here. They're, they're, you know, earlier in Mark chapter 10, it says we have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. This is not what God had in mind, you know, playing this kind of, give me whatever I want. Well, what do you want? Well, I, I, you tell me you'll, you'll give it to me first and then I'll tell you. That's not what God has in mind when he talks about receiving the kingdom of God like a child. But that's what, what James and John do. They approach Jesus and say, hey, we want you to do something for us. Can you tell us yes? Well, Jesus said, well, hold up. What, what do you want from me? I'm not going to agree to something until I know what it is. See, James and John, they have this mindset. They, they know something is about to happen. They know that Jerusalem is where things happen. That's where kings are made in Israel. And they know that they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And this is the first time Jesus is going to Jerusalem with them since he has professed that he is the Christ. And they know that that's something. They don't, they don't know what, but they know is something is coming. And they think that it's, well, the kingdom is about to arrive. They can see the writing on the wall. They think that Jesus' kingdom is about to fully come. And they want, they, they need, according to themselves, They need to capitalize on this, and so they ask Jesus before they get there, hey, Jesus, we want to be number one, we want to be number two in your kingdom. We want to sit at your right hand, we want to sit at your left hand in glory. They're they're essentially asking, to use modern-day language in the United States, they're asking, hey, Jesus, can we be your vice president and your secretary of state? When you establish your kingdom, we want to be number two, we want to be number one, we want to be the first person in succession and the second person in succession. Whatever happens to you, we want to make sure that we are taken care of as well. Now, significantly, Mark leaves out one of the more embarrassing details, if you're familiar with the parallel in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew actually reveals that uh, they didn't do this on their own. They actually co-opted their mom to come and ask Jesus for them. So it says this, 
Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now picture this scene. It's almost comical if it wasn't just so sad considering what awaits Jesus. James and John, they're standing in the background. They're trying to play it cool. They're not making eye contact with Jesus while their mom is asking Jesus this question. Now their mom is doing all the dirty work here of asking Jesus for this position of power in his kingdom. And, and their mom, you know, readily obliges. After all, this is her chance uh, to start the Zebedee dynasty, right? This is political dynasty, uh, but not just a dynasty that will, that will last for, you know, a couple generations, but a, a dynasty that will last forever. After all, it's not every day that you get the opportunity to have two of the, most, uh, two of the three most powerful people in the world be your sons, and that they will live forever in charge of this kingdom Forever. And so she, she comes to Jesus and says this exact thing. And, and we have the insight of what is to come. We know how grossly inappropriate this request is. James and John, they're seeking power. And Jesus is about to be crucified in order to seek the lost. Disciples seeking power, Jesus seeking the lost. James and John, they're pursuing their own glory. And the true king of glory is about to lay his life down. James and John, they're, they're seeking their own exaltation. The, the, the real exalted one is about to go to his death. How does Jesus respond? Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This is, I just love Jesus' response here. It is so patient. Even with the cross just you know, a couple weeks away, Jesus is so patient with them. He doesn't rip into them. He just simply says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking of me. This is, this is patience right here. He's, he's going to take the opportunity to teach his disciples again about the cross, about what is to come. This cup, this imagery of the cup, it's, it's common in the Old Testament to describe the, the, the wrath of God, the, the judgment that God pours out on his people. Baptism here is an allusion to Jesus' death, just like in Romans chapter 6. James and John think that the kingdom is about to come, and it is about to come, but, but the kingdom is, is not going to come through this conquering king. It's going to instead come through Jesus' suffering and through his death. So Jesus asks his disciples, well, if you, do you really think that you're ready to face the same suffering and the same death that I face? And, and the disciples, they don't know what Jesus is actually talking about. They say, sure. Let's take a look at verse 39. And they said to him, we're, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with, uh, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, the greatness of Jesus's patience here is just seemingly matched by the ignorance of James and John. They, they unknowingly say, yeah, Jesus, we can take the wrath of God. We can take the, the sins of of all of humanity thrown onto our back exactly like you. And Jesus knows, he knows all things, and, and he knows what is, is coming for James and John. Jesus, as he's looking at these two disciples, these two friends of his, he knows that James is going to be the first of his 12 disciples that is killed for the gospel. And he knows that, that John is the last one of his disciples that is going to die. Acts 12 tells us that J James was killed by Herod because of a whim. We, according to church tradition, we, we know that, that John never actually died a martyr's death, but he suffered many things for the gospel. And Jesus, he's looking at these two that, that say, yeah, we're ready. And, and it's almost like he says, you have no idea what you're asking, and you have no idea what will come your way. You will indeed Drink the cup of suffering. You will indeed face death before I return. But for you to sit at my right hand and for you to sit at my left hand is, is not up to me. I don't just hand those positions out lightly. They've, in fact, already been chosen by God the Father. And if we are familiar with what takes place just a few chapters later in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is crucified, when Jesus enters into glory as the crucified king who saves, all, saves people as a ransom for many, there is someone at his right. And there is someone at his left. And Jesus says, it is not for you. 
but God has chosen two who will be crucified with me. And, and before we continue with this passage, I just want us to pause and ask a pointed question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking from Jesus? You see, James and John, uh, they're earnest in following Jesus. They, they loved him. They want to be with him. They listen to his teaching. They want his kingdom to come. There's no reason to doubt that. And yet, as in their hearts, there's this seed of love for Jesus growing in their hearts. At the exact same time, there is this seed of self-love, of this self-exaltation growing in their hearts. They want Jesus' kingdom to come, yes, but they also, at the same time, want their own kingdom to flourish as well. And they thought that Jesus could give it to them, that these two things are not mutually exclusive. Jesus, give us the kingdom and also give us our kingdom as well. And what about you? What are you seeking from Jesus? If you are a Christian, I don't doubt that you want Jesus' kingdom to come. I don't doubt that you are earnest in your love for Jesus. But as that seed grows in your heart, what else is, is taking root in your heart? What else are you seeking from Jesus? And surely none of us are as bold as James and John here to seek our own self-exaltation with these exact same words. But we are oftentimes just as guilty of the same type of heart in a far more subtle and also oftentimes a far deadlier way. James and John, they wanted Jesus, but they also wanted their own glory. What about you? What's your also? Jesus, but also blank. What are you seeking from Jesus? Now, as we may imagine, James and John's request doesn't sit well with the other disciples, the other 10 of them. Uh, let's take a look at the next section, starting in verse 41. And when the 10 heard of it, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, the other disciples, they, they hear what James and John have asked for, and, and they're angry. And maybe you're like, all right, finally, we got some disciples who have their heads on straight. We have some disciples here who think that this is completely inappropriate. But, uh, but <laughs> it's not explicit in the text, but it's pretty clear that, that Mark is, is, is hinting toward the fact that the reason why the disciples, the other ten, are, are mad, they're angry with Jesus, is not because James and John made an inappropriate request. It's instead because James and John asked first. James and John were the ones who beat them to the punch. We quickly see that this problem that James and John have in their heart is not just with James and John, but it's also with all of the disciples. That's why Jesus addresses all of them here in verse 42. And Jesus called all of them, excuse me, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus here is, is using uh, this illustration that would have been despicable to first century Jews. First century Jews, they were well aware of the abuses of power from the Gentiles. Roman rulers, they'd spend a great deal of their time talking about their own greatness. They'd even demand worship from people. They'd consider themselves gods. The Caesars would mint coins with their face on them that would declare how great they were and how glorious they were. The Herods of the day, the Pilots of the day, they would kill those who got in their way without much of a second thought because the most important thing to them was seeking power for their own exaltation. And for the Gentile rulers, power is this drug that they have never had enough of. Power was to be sought absolutely, no matter how many people you had to step on in order to get there in your search for power. And if you were in a place of power, then other people existed to serve you. Not the other way around. Nothing is off limits for those who seek greatness. The ends justify the means if you can get to the top. And nothing has really changed today, has it? Sure, there are exceptions of those who are in positions of power and, and of greatness, whether they're Christian or not. And yet many and most people use power to serve themselves. It's not, it's not the... It's not that unusual today. CEOs oftentimes will, will see it as their right to exalt themselves and to honor themselves and to bless themselves at the expense of other people around them who, even though they may not say it this way, exist to serve them. And, and don't even get me started on Washington. 
This is what we see through and through from both sides of the aisle. They're, they're far more concerned with their own power and keeping that power than they are with any sort of good for those that are elected to serve. If you have been paying attention to the impeachment trials over the last um, couple, uh, hearings rather, excuse me, over the last couple weeks, um, the posturing from both sides, I mean, it's, it, it writes itself as a sermon illustration. People are far more concerned with speaking to their base and pursuing and protecting their own power than they are about showing humility. They're more, more concerned with protecting their own ego than they are with pursuing truth and justice and service, as Jesus describes in this passage. Now, the way of the world is, is founded on this, this way of exalting ourselves, of, of seeking our own glory, of putting ourselves first. Exaltation of self is normal in the world, and so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, do you realize that in all of your bickering, in all of your, your arguments, and all of your, your posturing, and all of your pursuit of power, all of your self-exaltation, that's just as disgusting and wicked to me as those Gentile rulers who call themselves gods. There's no difference. You just have a sanitized tongue. You have the exact same heart. Your deep concern with yourself, your deep concern with making sure that you get yours, that you receive the recognition that you think you deserve, that your desire to take care of yourself, Jesus says that, that's not how it works in my kingdom. And then he gives an example of what it should look like in his kingdom. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I love the simple way that one pastor sums up this message with four simple words. Not so with you. Not so with you. Whatever the world seeks, Jesus says, not so with you. The power that the world seeks, not so with you. This ends justify the means attitude that, that will do anything in order to exalt ourselves. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Not so with you. The whole world may be concerned with seeking power and growing their greatness and making sure that they get what they feel like they deserve, but that's not the way it works with my disciples. Not so with you. You. The way of Jesus is and must be completely and utterly different. It is not a way of self-exaltation, but instead of self-sacrifice. It says that greatness comes through service. Primacy comes through slavery. You see, it's not wrong to want to be great. But Jesus says you're using the wrong dictionary. Greatness is not defined by how many people admire your greatness, but by how low you are willing to stoop. It's not wrong to want to be first, but make sure you're using the right dictionary. Primacy is not defined by how many people you are in front of, but by your willingness to let go of all of your rights and your quest to serve anyone and everyone. You see, even in the church, we, I think we do this all too often. We use a, a definition or a dictionary that is written by pagans rather than by God, defining these terms the way Jesus does. Can you think of a more ridiculous notion? The, the pursuit of power and the pursuit of glory is, is seemingly just as prevalent in the church as it is in the world around us. And so Jesus gives us four simple words. Not so with you. The text closes what Jesus is describing of his own mission in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This verse serves as a startling contrast between the ideas of greatness and power in the world and, and the ideas of greatness and power in the kingdom of God. It's, it's evident even in the way the, verse, the way the verse starts. It starts with the word for, right? Why is it that Jesus says, not so with you? Well, it's simply because he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Jesus himself has already done this. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And I know it, it may be hard for you to believe. We are um, like a week away from, from December. Advent starts next week. 
Advent, this word literally just means coming. It is arrival. It is, it is referring to this time where, as Christians, we set aside about a month or so for us to prepare our hearts and remember Jesus is coming to earth at Christmas to prepare our hearts for Jesus' second advent, his second coming to earth, when he will one day return. So consider just briefly the significance of this passage as we think toward Christmas. First, notice the word came here. Now, I don't know about you, but when we talk about the birth of our children, we don't say, well, Silas uh, came to our family on, on June 2nd. 2015. Why, is, why don't we say that? Because it makes it sound like it was his decision, or that was a decision that he made, that he signed some sort of contract to join our family, that he was somewhere else, and then he decided to come. And that, that's, that's, that's not the case. So why is it significant that this passage says that the Son of Man came? Well, it's significant because in saying that the Son of Man came, Jesus is leaving no doubts about his origins, he, he, he can say the Son of Man came to earth because unlike each and every one of us, he already existed. In fact, he's existed from the very beginning. He was the ruler of the cosmos, and he didn't need anyone's permission to come. Instead, it was a part of his plan. It was a part of his father's plan all along. And so as we turn to Christmas, we do so recognizing that that baby boy born in the manger is the one who has already always existed, but he chose to come. To earth. It's a part of his plan. And what is that plan? Well, we see Jesus start by saying, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The implication, of course, is that if Jesus came to earth, he very easily, and it would have been well within his rights, to say, I am worthy of being served. The Son of Man could have shown up on earth as a conquering king. He could have demanded that everyone, as the ruler of the cosmos, that everyone make him a monument to his honor. To say how great and incredibly powerful and worthy of glory he is. It wouldn't have been an unreasonable ask. Has there ever been anyone that worthy of honor? Anyone that worthy of our service? And yet the Son of Man, even the Son of Man... When he came, he did not show up in this fashion. He did not show up as a 30-something in the peak of his life, ready to conquer the Romans. He didn't skip over the boring years of, of learning how to walk and learning how to talk. He didn't skip over the, the boring years or the difficult years of, of trying to, to be a preteen. No, he, he showed up as a little baby. And even when he shows up as a little baby, he doesn't show up in the greatest palace on earth. Instead, he comes to earth in the humblest of beginnings, being born in a manger. The Son of Man came not to, to be served, but rather to serve. And what is the height of that service? Well, Jesus tells us at the end of the verse, the Son of Man, Jesus came not as a king, demanding servants, but instead as a servant who would give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is not a, a word that we use frequently today, but it's a word we probably all know because you guys have seen movies. You've seen kidnapping stories, right? Kidnappers demand ransom. But it was a common word in the first century, this word ransom, because if you were a slave that would like to be freed, then you would have to pay a ransom. However great or small, you would have to pay a ransom in order to buy your freedom. So when Jesus says he comes to be a ransom for many, he, he's making a couple of significant statements, just two. First, he's, he's making a statement about humanity. First, he's saying that humanity is, is slaves. That This might surprise us because as Americans, we, we value our, our freedom above all, but Jesus says, no, 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 you, you are slaves. Slaves to what? Well, Paul tells us in Romans that we're slaves to sin. In Ephesians, he, he goes on and, and, and says it a little more uh, challenging to us, that we're, we're enslaved to our sinful passions. So Jesus, if he's a ransom for many, it first means we have to come to grips with the fact that without Jesus, then we are enslaved to some something. And we see in the rest of the New Testament that that is our sin, that we are in need of redemption, of being ransomed, of being rescued, that we are not able to free ourselves. 
Second, though, is that Jesus is not just making a statement about humanity. He's also making a statement about himself. Even though humanity is enslaved, in some way or form, his life is so valuable, his life is so precious, it is so worthwhile that it actually will accomplish the ransom payment. That he can actually serve by giving his life up as a worthwhile substitute and payment for their freedom. Money is not what is going to save people from their slavery to sin. It is instead Jesus' own life. And that's what Jesus talked about at the beginning of our passage this morning. How can this be? The answer is found in the Old Testament, a prophecy that speaks to what Jesus is, is about to accomplish for the many. Many of us are familiar with this, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Who has Jesus freed? Well, it's the many, as we see in verse 11 here from Isaiah 53. And how has he done this? Well, it's by carrying our griefs and our sorrows, by being pierced for our transgressions and our iniquities, the punishment, the chastisement that was upon us, that was meant for us, has instead been placed upon him, and we have been given peace. By his death, we have been saved. And as Jesus turns his attention to Jerusalem and the cross that awaits him, he finds himself once again having to remind his disciples of what it means to follow him and not to follow after the world. It's not to seek your own exaltation. It's not to seek your own greatness. It's instead to follow in the steps of a crucified Messiah who gave his life up for his sheep, one who frees them from their slavery to sin. And that's really what this passage is about. This passage, uh, you can really sum it up into, into two parts. It's a declaration, first, of what Jesus has done for us, that he has given himself as a ransom for many, and then what we are called to do as his followers in response to that, right? That's the way the gospel works. What Jesus has done for us, how do we live in light of that truth? And if I were to sum up this passage, I would just do it this way. The greatest thing you could ever do with your life is to give your life to others in the service of the one who saved you. The greatest thing that you could ever do with your life is to give your life in service to others because of the one who gave himself for you. You see, remember, Jesus doesn't do anything that he is, or doesn't ask you to do anything that he hasn't already done. He's about to give himself up as a ransom for many, and he says that if you would be my follower, you must do the same. And so as we close, just three brief questions from this passage. First, are you one of the many? Are you one of the many? As, as you hear this passage that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for many, the implication, of course, is, is that he's not a ransom for everyone, that there are some who are not ransomed by Jesus. Are you counted among those who are considered the many, those that Jesus has saved, that Jesus has rescued and freed from slavery? Do you recognize your own great need for someone to come and rescue you? Have you placed your faith in Jesus as the only one who can save you? Second, are you seeking your own exaltation? Are you seeking your own exaltation? Whose glory do you seek? Are you like James and John, happy to, to serve Jesus, but also at the same time you'd, you'd like to exalt yourself along the way? It's, it's true in all of life. This, this type of hard attitude shows up in all of life. I just want to just speak specifically to 
the church, though? Are you dissatisfied with what station in life God has called you to in the church? Are you dissatisfied with the number of people that God has sovereignly brought into your life for you to minister to? Do you think that your, your gifts are being wasted in a forum that is too small or, or too insignificant or made up of the wrong age or the wrong type of people? Whose glory are you really seeking? And the third question is this. Am I living a life of sacrifice to others? Am I living a life of sacrifice and service to others? Am I following my king and giving my life for others? The Christian life is one that should be marked by service to others. And am I serving others? Am I giving myself for others or do I think that others exist to serve me? Church, the greatest thing that you could ever do with your life is to give your life for the one who gave himself for you. Jesus has given himself as, as our ransom. Let's respond by giving our lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the message of the gospel that you did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know that truth, Father, I ask that you would, in your grace, convict them, speak to them, and draw them to you. Father, we all ask for forgiveness for the ways that we have, even if we sought your glory, we sought ours as well. We ask for forgiveness for the times that we have exalted ourselves, that we have gone out of our way to make sure people know how good we think that we are. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to be a people who give our lives in service to others for the sake of the one who has given his life as a ransom for many. It's in Jesus' name we pray.